episode of mtg fast finance the podcast that's given you 400 epic reasons to love the game we hate to love to hate mtg fast finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic the gathering finance collection management and speculation i am your host james chilcott aka at mtg critic on twitter my co-host this week is cliff daigle at word of commander on twitter and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game magic the gathering Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here for number 400. And as always, I'm looking forward to diving into all the stuff that's happened this week, our fun little retrospective here. But before we do, I want to remind all our listeners that this show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Please sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat on a great Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, my friend, what is on the agenda this marvelous 400th week? Well, uh, we've got the usual stuff on deck. We've got our Metagame Week in Review. We've got a Modern Challenge and a Pioneer Challenge to talk about. We've got our top movers in paper, uh, including some fun combo cards. We've got our top movers online, our cards to watch in segment four. And in segment five, we get to talk about some uh, interviews with folks. And I hope that at the beginning, when we have 400, you splice in a little fanfare in there. A little... <laughs> I don't know. It just needs that. Yeah, so what we're actually doing is we're going to talk a little bit about the origins of the cast and go back and take a look at the very first week of picks and your first picks from your first appearance on cast and see how they did uh, for the folks listening. And then we're also going to be doing a series of interviews that are aimed not so much at the cast, but more at bringing in key magic personalities in the community and talking about the state of magic at the end of its 30th anniversary year and try to get a sense of where things are headed from here and how the various segments of our ecosystem feel about the game, the company that makes it, and the people that play it. So we will uh, dive right in here on a little bit of background. Seven and a half years ago, our dearly departed friend Travis... Bro, he's not dead. <laughs> he's don't, dead. don't say it like that. He, 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 he's, he's put himself in the grave of the magic community as far he as He may concerned. not be listening, but you don't need to talk about him like, uh, dear Lord in heaven, hallowed be Travis's name. He, who knows? People tend to pop back up in this game, so who knows what it will take that, that will get him interested and uh, back in the saddle. But the probably kids growing up would help. I was going to say his kids, yeah. Yeah. So Travis was complaining about two major things. One was that he felt like we should have a podcast because he wanted to go head-to-head with Brainstorm Brewery. And the second was that we had a message board that was basically dead. The original owner of MTG Price had set up a fairly basic uh, old-school message board. And it was the kind of, you know, one of millions online where somebody would, like, post a question into the void and no one would ever get back to them and like a week later somebody else would do the same thing and 
you know, I don't remember did... being that dead, but yes, it was pretty close to that. Yeah. So the podcast we we ended up tackling pretty much right away. The Discord waited a little while, um, but then took off just completely like gangbusters. And of course, the big joke with the origins of the cast is that we were aiming to do a really tight like 10 to 20 minute episode every week um both of us were you know we're busy now even then we were busy and we were like you know what we probably have time for like 20 minutes a little bit of editing and we'll get it out the door in an hour a week kind of thing and sure enough that's not where things went at all mtg fast finance has become your beloved one to two hour episode every week but we did that because we felt like you there was a lot left unsaid if you tried to do a really quick recap and we were getting a lot of feedback from viewer from listeners that the extended format was beneficial and so we've uh, embraced it and and done it to whatever length seems appropriate given the topics of the day and here we are 400 episodes almost eight years later probably heading looking pretty good to make it to our 10-year anniversary somewhere down the line and oh <laughs> and uh, very much looking like magic will still be alive to get us there well i mean magic will be alive and i say 10 years as with the winds but you know i i've been writing uh magic articles for more than 10 years now i think uh my my 10 year anniversary was this past summer for my first article on mtg price so yeah it's completely possible that uh i don't you know decide I'm done and I, I can't handle it anymore. I need you to do somebody else. Uh, you've done every podcast that's happened has had either you, me or Travis. Yep. And I don't, I don't think we have broken that streak yet. Uh, given vacations and everything else. It's been, it was mostly you and Travis. And then I was always the designated substitute teacher, a title, which made me laugh very much. And then uh, I, my first show was the twentieth episode, and we'll we'll get there. But it's been interesting to see that uh, how many things have not really changed along the way; they've just gotten more organized. I know that my ability to do podcasts really got better when the pandemic hit, and I upgraded everything so that I could teach online much more efficiently. So my podcasting got commiserately much better, I think. But it's been an interesting ride. And looking back at the super old shows, I hadn't dragged up this spreadsheet probably since it stopped. So I hadn't gone back to look at pics from seven years ago. And I was really worried, but I, I'm pleasantly surprised, actually. When we go all the way back to the first episode, it was recorded on February 9th, 2016. So we're just a little short of eight full years here. And the top movers that week were Karn Liberated, going 35 to 60, Valakit the Molten Pinnacle, going 450 to 850, Thought Not Seer, going 750 to 15, Pia and Kieran Nalar, going 220 to 450, Stony Silence, 6 to 13, Kiki Jiki, 9 to 21, Urborg, 11 to 25, Leonin Arbiter, 225 to 550 and the top winner of the week was mind slicer out of odyssey dollar 50 to ten dollars as people figured out that in discard decks in edh it was completely ridiculous it, there was a lot of ridiculousness going on also the 
how did we even do this with the formatting we have in this spreadsheet? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it hurts. <laughs> yeah, it hurts the, the eyeballs. Old formatting hurts the eyes, yeah. And then on cards to watch, <laughs> I had three picks that week. And two of the three got there. Uh, the very first pick I ever made on cast was Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger out of Battle for Zendikar to go 25 to 40. That card actually ended up peaking at $85 before it was reprinted. And anyone who got in in that mid-20s range certainly did well for themselves if they held to an appropriate length. The second pick was not nearly as charmed. It was Jace Friend's Prodigy Foils out of Origins to go 95 to 150. They were sitting really high coming out of the winter of um, the multicolor control decks in Standard. Jace was one of the first mythics ever in Standard to be $100 plus uh, on the show floors at major tournaments. And it very much looked like in that era where reprints were few and far between that the foils were going to go higher and higher. Thing is, once it rotated out of Standard, other formats didn't need it. And it was good in EDH, but it wasn't bonkers. And also EDH hadn't really taken off to the degree that it has since. And so by the time six or 12 months after its standard rotation had elapsed, they had dropped to 20 or $30, never to recover. Never, and, yeah. Yeah. And then it caught a couple of reprints along the way, and the rest is history. The other pick I had here surprised me um, that it did as well, as well as it did, and in fact that I kind of nailed it. It was Origins Booster Boxes to go 90 to 160, and they absolutely got there. Took a couple years, but boxes have been hovering in the like 145 to 160 range for the last three or four years, and are probably going to stay there forever because there's never going to be any more of them than there are. What are what were the chase cards in Origins besides uh, Baby Jace, Infant Jace? I'm sorry, Baby Jace is three drop Jace for those of you that use that nomenclature. That is a good question. Let's go back and take a look. Jace, of course, caught his reprints in From the Vault Transform. It was ended up in the list where it was not a foil. And then there was the San Diego Comic-Con black foil version. Oh, my God. Those black versions from Comic-Con with the... As impossible the, to read as anything ever printed for this game. God, it's like six-point font, and then it's silver on black. It's impossible. You're right. So the highest price tags on anything out of Origins are Chandra's Ignition is a $12 card currently market price. Archangel of Tithe, this is a $10 card. Alahomret's Archive, $10 card. Star- Starfield of Nyx, $9. Sword of the Animist, $6. Kithion, Hero of Akros, is at 5 I would imagine at the time that I was looking at cards like Jace, Hallowed Moonlight, Dark Petition, Nissa Vaswood Seer, and Alahomret's Archive. And predicting that because it was a low-selling summer set that the boxes would eventually get there. I mean, Dark Petition hasn't been reprinted. Has I feel like Archive should have been reprinted. It was. But it's been in a couple Commander decks, yeah. No, no, no. It was in Brothers... Isn't it one of the Brothers War special nope. serialized? It is not. Interesting. I thought it was. Actually, would. that might not be a bad pick, because that's the, the only foil version is from Magic Origins. Hmm... I have to think about that. It's just it it's gonna get reprinted eventually and it's not gonna be it's not a huge EDH card. 
it's just super handy. Yeah, it's just it's just been in the list in Commander twenty twenty one. You're right, and uh, it could it could easily have shown up in the Ixalan special slot, and I, I don't know that we've seen all of the cards that are in that special slot. Yeah, we haven't seen all of that yet, but so yeah, it, more of it, those are coming. It could still get hit. Yeah, it's got a very specific uh, name that references a specific character. Alahamrut was the Sphinx that trained Jace, so I don't think it's going to show up in the Ixalan uh, subset. In the main set, no, but it could show up on any special grouping. So, how did your first set of picks go? So, my first picks were in the 20th episode, was the first time I showed up. Uh, so, Travis went on vacation for a couple of weeks, if I remember right. And I had three, one of which, two of which got there, and one of which is a little brutal. Uh, we'll start with the good. Uh, I picked Vampiric Tutor, Vampiric Tutor Foils out of Eternal Masters. And remember, this was, you know, uh, June of 2016. So uh, this was before there were any special versions. It was foil or that was it. And this is the the new t- the first time we had this sweet, like, skull being held art that's so amazing. And it looked really great in foil. And I picked it to go 100 to 150 it topped out at uh, 200 plus in 2019, but uh, so that one got there nicely. Uh, then I picked Jace, the Unraveler of Secrets, out of Shadows Over Innistrad to go 4 to 10, and it was exactly right. In January of 2017, it got to $10, so good job me. And then uh, Behold the Beyond was my other pick, the, the Mythic out of... Was this a mythic? SOI. Yeah, instead of Shadows Over Innistrad. So this is a, a very bad card that I thought would have some kind of weird combo potential. It was a cheap buy-in, and I, I thought, like, all right, we're going to go for a, a penny stock here that could pay off really well, and it never did. Um, it's seven mana, discard your hand, and then tutor for three cards and put them in your hand. Like, what are you going to do at, after that? You could just play... Honestly, in retrospect, like Dark Petition's just a better card at, at all points. Yeah, fair and there's a, any any other wide list of cards could be better than Behold the Beyond. But you know, I did pretty good for those two picks way back in uh, 2017, so, 2016. So good job, Pascliff. Two two for three for both of us is not bad at all. All right, we can move on to some more recent information here. The metagame we can review pretty straightforward challenges on friday in modern on magic online as well as the pioneer challenge this past sunday october 29th over in the modern challenge we kick things off with black red scam in first no huge surprise there this is another dominant week for that deck first fourth sixth and seventh and then black green yogmoth was in second with three copies of agatha's soul cauldron living end showing up in third a five-color domain list in fifth, an amulet titan with four copies of the One Ring, four of the titan it's named after, and four summoners packed in eighth. Over in the Pioneer Challenge on Sunday, we have Blue-Red Phoenix taking the whole thing down. That's four Arclight Phoenix and four Picklock Prankster out of Wilds of Eldraine. And then second and third place were two green-red mid-range decks that looked almost identical uh, and featuring four Essica's Chariot, four White Humans, uh, sorry, fourth place was White Humans. Uh, they were also in eighth. We had Greasefang in fifth, 
red aggro in sixth, and that uh, red-white tokens deck with three Imidane's Recruiter was in seventh. Man, Imidane's Recruiter is just so good. I'm glad to see it uh, kicking butt in actual constructed paper, just looking great and making everyone want to just go home and cry. One of those banner uncommons in the limited format for sure. Over in top paper movers, we have the Rogue Class Ampersand Promos. Foils going 28 to 36. That's 30% gains there. Probably uh, some combination of fairies and Doctor Who cards that are pushing that up the ladder a little bit. Leyline Binding Extended Arts out of Dominaria United going 11 to 14.50. That's modern and legacy play for this card. Everywhere that you can fetch up Triomes it tends to come down for one mana and take care of a problem. And draw you a card with the beans out. We see some early targeting of some Doctor Who cards alongside all that 40k action that's happened all year. Wound Reflection Surge foils at a Doctor Who going 350 to $5, 42% gains there. Exotic Orchard Surge foils says 40k here, but I think it was actually the Doctor Who ones going 3 to 450, 50% gains. Interesting to see people biting off pieces, kind of like smelling the blood in the water, as it were, on the basis that the whole community just seems to kind of like be blowing past Doctor Who, <laughs> despite how deep uh, those decks run and how well they play out of the box, uh, especially the timey-wimey one. And They're all good, yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all pretty good. And there's a lot of good new cards. There's got a, a lot of key reprints that have gotten their first fancy foil treatment uh, including the fiery eyelet cycle and so forth a bunch of like cute art and some absolutely ridiculous art i don't think i'm ever going to forgive them for the talisman that has a piece of celery on it um <laughs> but yeah they, I, I won't be surprised to see these start to move the best of these cards to start to move in in similar ways to the, the 40k surge foils because there's more of these people need to be aware of that that cbs versus premium decks is like night and day because the premium decks came out and then promptly disappeared off the market for the most part where it never got reprinted whereas the cbs could well be on discount at some point in in, in subsequent months because there's got to be some stock sitting around uh court of antra set of wilds of eldraine commander cards two to three dollars that's a reprint from cmr if i'm not mistaken no no no, no. no court that's of the new one. That's is, the... is the one out of uh yeah it's a monarchy from, card yeah it's just from the set yeah uh, Rousing Refrain regular copies out of the C21 deck, so not the Strixhaven CBs like the Extended Arts come out of. 9 to 14 on those, 55% gains. You have Their Name is Death, which destroys all non-artifact creatures. Went straight into my upgraded Brea build, and I pulled it out of a Necron Surge Foil deck, so if you want to understand the pedigree there, it tells you everything you need to know. $3 to $6, 100% gains. Crashing Footfalls foils have gone 15 to $30 plus and are completely draining out. I've sold out of everything I had. This is one of my picks from a couple years back on the cast, and I was picking them up under $10, and I sold a whole bunch of play sets of them recently, and I've successfully exited on this back. It never caught reprint. No secret layer, no reprint of any kind. I don't think it's even been in the list, if I'm not mistaken. Nope. It has had the original printing in Modern Horizons 1, and that's it. And uh, I'm, I've got to find somebody to take my last non-foil copies off my hands, because I feel like very strongly this is going to show up in Modern Horizons three. It's never had a premium version, and it's 
at the center of a shardless rhinos deck that has been a consistent presence in the meta more or less since within the first year of its printing and on that basis alone i don't see how they're gonna resist printing this back into mh3 in some form as borderless with fresh art and as part of whatever subset they they include there it's it seems very likely to me that it catches that reprint i agree yeah We've got Time Beetle Surge Foils as one of the other Doctor Who cards under some pressure, $3 to $7. We've got Questing Druid, pretty much all versions exploding. The regular versions going 3 to $7. That's on the back of multi-format competitive play and standard pioneers, some modern, some legacy. I've even seen it, seen it in vintage. Questing Druid Foil Showcase version went 5 to 15 so 200% gains. And... We've also got Wild Magic Sorcerer out of CLB going a dollar to three fifty, two hundred and fifty percent gains, and then with all the Ixalan reveals for the Caverns of Ixalan, where we had Wild Growth Walker, which uh, I think has an infinite combo with some of, one of the other revealed cards. Foils going right. fifty cents to ten dollars, nineteen hundred percent gains. If there's ever a situation where you want to exit immediately, it's going to be with something like this. And Wild Growth Walker is even sold out on foil on card market across the pond. So, like, there is every, everywhere you can possibly get one, it's been sold out. And you should dig through whatever paper copies you have and get rid of your stuff. It's an infinite combo in Abzan colors. So, you need to have the white black vampire whenever you gain life, you explore. And then you just need some way to gain an extra life with the two creatures in play. Your vampire uh, explores 20 times, it gets to 20, it blows up everything, uh, and then you attack for 20. So, GG. Yeah, nasty. Alright, moving on over to the top Magic Online movers of the week. We've got Ancient Tomb Tempest Edition versions going 16 tickets to 23 ticks. That's 45% gains on the back of Legacy and EDH usage. I would imagine that's uh, a shifting in the treasure chest or something like that. Questing Druid also making gains on the online platform, 7.57 ticks to 11.58. That's 53% gains, again, on that very strong multi-format play. And then the Essica's Chariot that showed up in the green-red mid-range deck that was second and third in the Pioneer Challenge on the weekend, going 2.99 to 5.47, 83% gains due to Pioneer dominance. Uh, moving on over to cards to watch. I've got a spicy one here moonshaker cavalry was flagged early on in the wilds of eldraine preview season as being a basically a white crater hoof crater hoof and for eight mana you get a six six flyer it's a spirit and a knight where that's relevant and when it enters the battlefield creatures you control gain flying and plus x plus x until end of turn where x is the number of creatures you control so an edh index like Ginny fey or or St. Traft, or any of the other token builds, you have 5, 10, 15 things on the board, you're going to cast the cavalry. If they can't counter it or wipe the board with the Cyclonic Rift in response, you're probably swinging in for the victory, because though people can often block uh, a, a decent number of creatures, they usually have trouble blocking that many flyers. So this thing has always been destined for a high level of play in that particular format, it's also worth noting that it's not an on-cast trigger, so if you reanimate this thing, you get the benefits as well if you're dipping into black and running tokens. But the foil extended arts are currently sitting around $20. They started as high as 
80 60 to 80 on pre-order and then tumbled 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 as you would expect them to and they're currently sitting at a flat 20 i could see them getting down as low as 15 thing is over in japan if you're willing to take a risk on some of the japanese copies of the foil extended arts you can get them for six dollars that seems awesome that's so far below the english price that absolutely i took a flyer on a handful of those today and threw them into a cart over there because my game plan usually with stuff like that where the japanese vendors on ebay will under undercut me is to make sure that i'm comfortable selling at an exit point that is where I think the English copy will end up given enough time to collapse. So I'm planning on getting in around five, six, seven, and getting out at 15 to 20. And this card isn't, is a kind of wordy, but not really. It's not a complex card. Once you played it a couple times, you don't really need to read it ever. And foreign cards in premium versions still continue to sell well for me. I very rarely get caught holding them as long as I'm judicious about which ones I select. And this looks like it is doing well enough in the format to be a standout. It is, if you look at the cards on EDH Rec, it is the third most played in the set after Stroke of Midnight, which I called early as an important removal spell. Beseech the Mirror, which has all sorts of combo and tutor potential. And then just slightly below the play level of Beseech the Mirror at 7,800 decks is Moonshaker Cavalry at 7,200, which is 3% of all white decks since it was released. I can't argue with any of that. This is a sweet card uh, for bonus fun. If you want to flicker this somehow, like you get down with your bad self, there's nothing but good to be had here. It's not in the ramp color, so it's not immediately GG like Crater Hoof is. Uh, there aren't as many ways to cheat creatures into play as what, you know, green can tooth and nail stuff up if you want to. But really, this is, like you said, it's just a finisher. It's just, you're going to play this, and the t game's going to be over, and you and your friends can move on to the next commander game. And if you can get this for a third of what TCG player is charging, uh, you pay that shipping and you pay it with a big smile. All right. Tell me about your first selection here. Uh, I've only got one pick this week. Uh, inspiration's been kind of uh, difficult this time of year. But um, I was playing a game and somebody hit this card on the table and I could not believe what I was seeing Biotransference is a card from the 40k decks, and it's an enchantment for two black-black. Creatures you control are artifacts in addition to their other types. This is also true for creature spells and creature cards you own that aren't on the battlefield. So everything's an artifact in your deck, in on the stack, and in play. And whenever you cast an artifact spell, you lose one life and make a 2-2 black Necron Warrior artifact creature token. Which means... Whenever you cast a creature, it comes with a free Artifact Creature 2-2. We have a lot of good things going on with uh, Artifact Creatures with uh, Doctor Who and Daleks. This is already a card screaming out for good things to happen. I need to put a copy of this into my Ayara deck so that every single creature I cast comes with a free 2-2. And losing one life to get a creature, you can get that back pretty easily. So... Uh, because this was a 40k card, the only way to get foils was the the 40k. 43 listings near mint. There are some vendors that are holding 10 plus copies, but for the most part, it's onesies, twosies. And it sells at a reasonably brisk pace for a fancy version of a mid-tier EDH card. Talking onesie, twosie per day kind of thing for the surge foils. 
Yeah, it's pretty good. And so you can get these for around six fifty. Uh, this is the tenth most popular card from forty k because it fits into all kinds of things. Uh, would you like a free artifact creature with every one of your artifact spells in Brea, James? Well, in Brea, what I do with this is there's a series of uh, a cycle of cards that are based on Trinket Mage, which is the original blue creature that can go search up an artifact that costs one. There's one that uh-huh. goes to, that gets goes and gets a two, a three, and a six. And once you have this in play, you can use it to search up any other creature. That seems good. Because all the creatures are now artifacts. The other thing you can do with this is there are Rona and, and associated combos where you're cycling artifacts into your yard and back to your hand. Uh, like yep. tapping, untapping Emery or whatever to put stuff back in your hand and then casting it again. Because this just wants you to cast an artifact spell. So if the artifact costs zero and you can cycle it in some way, bounce it to your hand, bounce it out of the yard, back to your hand etc then you can get an infinite uh, army of necrons on the back of that so it's got a lot of flexibility in terms of what you build around it and tends to benefit you in ways that are surprising even when you thought you had the the various lines of play covered yeah and it's it's so open-ended it just wants you to play artifacts and it turns all your stuff into artifacts all your creatures into artifacts anyway so there's going to be more stuff coming out. We're getting all sorts of new toys for creature token, for artifact tokens. So there's a lot of good stuff. And you can pick up Surge Foils for around 650 I think sometime in the next 6 to 12 months, we're going to see them hit a nice little double up into the $12 range. The other thing about this card is because it references, like, Biotransference is generic enough they could reprint it on that basis. But because it right. mentions Necron specifically on it, I think its reprint potential is significantly lessened because that forces them to go back to the Warhammer ownership to negotiate reuse. And as with things like Lord of the Rings and Marvel, all of those relationships have very specific boundaries around them. And there's just significantly more friction to get this back into a deck somewhere unless they revisit 40k. So, which is entirely possible. I think it's that that was a pretty solid. Like, I don't. I think Doctor Who is probably done. <laughs> this will be a one and done for right. Doctor Who. I think Forty K has got potential to be revisited. There's a lot more Forty K to do. There's a lot of fun things that they could redo. I think it would be pretty profitable for them. So yeah, I'm with you. Without a reprint, I could see this being a thirty or forty dollar forty dollar card down the road, because in the decks that want it, it's powerful. I mean, it'll get. Uh, put on some podcast or some uh, video log and somebody will have, you know, biotransference and some shenanigans level combo and all of a sudden there's 3,000 of them in play. So yeah, I'm, I agree. So the other selection I've got this week is I've been looking at the virtues, the mythics out of Wilds of Eldraine and just trying to keep my eye on them while they they drop to their, their floors, which are looking pretty steady like i would imagine they could still bleed a little bit over the next three to six months but i think they've done most of the collapsing that they're going to do i looked at all of them there's five and one in each color and i think most of them have spec potential i think some of them are more likely to end up in edh decks and catch a reprint down the road the red one strikes me like that might be the case. The green one that triples your mana also seems like it could could hold that problem. 
Virtue of Knowledge, on the other hand, doesn't look like the kind of thing that would easily get stashed into an EDH deck. You would have to have a commander that really cared about comes into play abilities, and they are relatively few and far between. So Virtue of Knowledge is four and a blue, and it's an enchantment that says if a permanent enters the battlefield causes entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control the trigger, it triggers twice. So same thing as Elish Norn, but you get it in blue. If you're playing in white and blue, it ends up being the backup plan to having the Elish Norn in play. It also has an adventure you can go on at instant speed that copies an activated or triggered ability you control. So you could do something cute like your opponent has one mana up during their turn to pay for your Ristic Study, but you cycle this and draw the card anyway. And th- <laughs> that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much you could be, you could do. You can in in my Moldrotha deck. I use it to double up on comes into play triggers on all sorts of different stuff from Baleful Strix to uh, the Echo Creature that kills a creature when it comes into play and so on and so forth. I think the Shielded Trigger that forces everybody to sacrifice a creature, you can get double duty off of that. Yep. Many, many, many nasty things. Also, the art is absolutely stunning on the showcase. Often you can make the argument that the difference between a regular copy and an extended art copy of a card is not all that big a deal when they have exactly the same art, but the art between the regular copy of Virtue of Knowledge and really all five of the virtues versus this specific one on Virtue of Knowledge, it's night and day. This is top tier fantasy art. Very, very interesting to look at. And overall, I find the Enchanted Tales border for the Eldraine series that they started in the original Eldraine to be just one of the more appealing borders they've ever done. So I'm looking at these just regular showcase copies, not foils. And regulars can be had as low as about $4 to $4.50, depending on where you buy them. I'm thinking that give it two years or so, these will be a $10 plus card. So let's call it four to 10. And in terms of its EDH pedigree, it is the fourth most popular just behind Moonshaker Cavalry with 5,900 decks reported so far to the 7,300 for Cavalry. So you're looking at, specifically, you want to look at the foil showcase versions. No, non-foil showcase. Oh, non-foil, excuse me. Let me change that into the thing. I got it, I got it. Non-foils. Uh, let's see, we're at three and change. So it's $3 plus a dollar shipping. I agree with you that it's not done, it hasn't found its bottom yet. Uh, that said, I don't know how much lower that bottom can be, as it does get enough play to have kept it from becoming like a $2 card right now. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm here. I, I'm probably going to wait before I make my, my purchases on this. I've, I've been uh, burned a few times on three months, and I, I'm on a six-month plan. I, I would want to give this time to reach, you know, two bucks, I think is completely reasonable for this, especially as we get to the holidays and somebody wants to fire sale their stuff out. Any leftover pallets end up in the gaming company's hands, that sort of thing. But one in a couple months, I think this is a very good pick, and I would want to have more than a few of these ready to go when they do go up. I agree with you about this frame, too. It is much better than a lot of the other frames. And there is no extended art version of this. There are some that have a showcase and an extended art. That is not the case here. Alrighty. Kicking off our 400th anniversary episode interviews. 
on the topic of Magic the Gathering at 30 years old. We're going to start things off this week with a welcome back to the cast, Magic designer and moderator extraordinaire, Alexis Jansen. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. So as I told you, Uh, before cast we are looking to do a bunch of interviews with relevant magic personalities this week to celebrate our 400th episode and also the tail end of the 30th anniversary of this game that we all uh, know and love what i'm looking to explore with you in particular um, tonight is to get an understanding of the evolution of magic design as seen through the lens of someone who has worked on the game for an extended period of time uh, and under the a certain set of prerogatives and assumptions within the design team and from the executives, I guess, above handing down from on high, and then how that has evolved now that you've stepped out of that arena and are looking back in from the outside. To kick that off, can we just do a little bit of a double back to your original history with the game can you give everybody a recap of how you ended up on the magic design team yeah yeah i'll do my best um i could talk about my history in magic and game design for hours but um uh for those of you who don't know i was the uh very first number one winner of the Great designer search, the very first one. Um, there's been three of total, I believe, at this point. Um, so I essentially, back in, I don't know, 20 years ago at this point, I don't know the exact date, uh, won what was essentially an internship in Magic uh, R&D against a bunch of contestants, a thousand other contestants. And I parlayed that internship into a, another internship, into a, you know, uh, a job as a developer. And when I say developer, I mean a, a game, uh, an engineer, like a software developer, right? Um, but as I was doing the internship and then later as a software developer, I had a chance to work on Magic and they kept they kept pulling me into sets over time, right? Like uh, I, I ended up working on, I think, a dozen different sets during my 11-year tenure at uh, Wizards of the Coast. And while I was doing that, I was also working on Magic the Gathering online and Magic the Gathering Arena. So I kind of had a really big picture of everything kind of from end to end over my course at Wizards. Um, My my, um, my biggest credit would be uh, my lead design credit on Dragon's Maze, but I I also contributed to a bunch of other sets in smaller ways. And uh, then I left Wizards right around the time Arena came out, maybe maybe a couple years after Arena came out, I don't know the exact timeline offhand. Um, And I kind of went off and doing other things and uh, then eventually got back into game design. So I have you know, a very different perspective now from somebody who left Wizards, uh, started selling my my retirement fund, as it's called, right? My big pile of magic product in the closet that Wizards gives you over the course of your employment, um, you know, parlayed that into a business, selling magic product and magic uh, cards, um, you know, joined MTG uh, Price. That was really great. You guys have been great. Um, and then eventually got back into to game design as well from a different direction. Now I'm doing mobile game development, um, my company, uh, I'm actually working with several other Magic players again: Matt Place, uh, LSV, uh, Raptor, um, Sam Party, yeah. a, a number of uh, names in Magic that you might recognize. Um, very, we're doing very, mobile, very mobile games. Pedigree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing we're doing mobile games, strategy mobile games now. Um, and in fact, we're actually hoping to have something out at least in in you know open beta sometime in 2024. So 
you know, look forward to that. But yeah, I've had, a, I've, I've got a lot of, uh, a wide range of exposure to different angles of game design at this point. But yeah, I haven't actually been working on magic for, you know, over a decade now. So we certainly look forward to bringing you back on to talk about the new project. Um, but just to create the complete the framing, do you remember what the first and last sets you worked you contributed to on the design or development side are? I, I actually do. Uh, so my very, very first ever set that I touched was morning tide, but that was like one or two cards. I think, uh, a couple holes, I think. Um, I, know, so I don't remember the name of the card at this point. Um, but Shadowmore and Eventide were the first sets that I worked, you know, pretty wholesale on as as full time a full time developer or designer, I guess in this case. Uh, and then the last set I touched was, at least in any meaningful way, was Rivals of Ixalan. I was on the design team for as well. So there's your your bookends essentially. Got yeah, it. I wasn't sure the the great designer search was twenty years ago, but you're you're naming sets from quite a long ways ago so yep. yeah it makes yep. a lot of sense yeah I, I remember being honest i i actually participated in that and i think made it to the second last stage and i remember being on a surf trip and like trying to like upload my final submission from <laughs> a cell phone <laughs> in the early 2000s and me like oh my god this is not working we got to go get my laptop plugged in somewhere and yeah, I, did you did you at least get your submission in on time? I, I think I did. Yeah, but it was the, it was okay. way more of a hassle than it would have been now. And yeah, it was good. It was a good time, and I remember uh, being excited for you when you won. And I think the, the entire community was excited with the whole notion that there was now this funnel that could potentially bring uh, you know hidden talent into the team. When you got there. How did your you know first couple of years of being involved on design projects contrast with your expectations of what it would be like to make magic? Uh, you know, that's <clears throat> there, there. There's a few things. You know, obviously being as long ago as it was, it's going to be hard to speak to too much detail there. But um, it was definitely a learning experience. I, I brought in you know, a lot of what you might call book knowledge of how to design magic cards, but I hadn't put in a ton of time actually doing it day to day, right? And you you learn a lot of things kind of by osmosis. And and it's just, it's just so much stuff that you don't really realize you do or don't know. Um, one of the biggest lessons, for example, that uh, Mark Rosarder would just pound into the interns was... Uh, you, just keep play testing, and when you think you've done enough play testing, play test some more. That you, you should, you can only theory craft so much. You you can sit in a room and talk about how a card might play or how a mechanic might play, but if you haven't at least tried it with some theme decks or some other really quick way to give it a shot, you really don't know. Um, unless it's you know just a tweak on an existing design, maybe. But for the most part, you you shouldn't waste time theory crafting. You should just try it. Um, and that's probably my biggest generic game design lesson that I took away from my time at Wizards that I continue to this day is like, let's stop talking, let's try it, right? I don't, I think the, in retrospect, the thing that surprises me the most is just how little top-down design there was at that point in Magic's history. Um, the number of you know, it's easy to look at magic design now and go, well, all these cards, look at all these neat top-down designs, look at, you know, Frodo and the ring and all that other stuff. We can talk about whether you like the cards or not. That's a different question. But it's very easy to just go anywhere with magic these days and go, oh, yep, that card was probably a top-down design. But uh, back when I won the Great Designer Search, that was pretty unusual. Most cards started out as a mechanical thing and then 
design or sorry uh uh story i forget the name david by uh doug Byer and his team uh they, they come in and, and flavor it they come in and give it card names and art and descriptions and stuff and, and figure out what it is right um and that's you know that changed over the time i was there you know i think it was m10 or magic 2010 where that whole philosophy shifted and started shifting and i think that was a huge renaissance for magic um but it, it interest it was it was surprising to me just how little of that there was there when i got there right yeah m10 was zendikar and that's that's pretty commonly held to be a time when magic really because the i'm not trying to cast shade but you know shadow more eventide blocks were kind of a the the low point and then in m10 with a a new refocus on things and uh, i know that my experience like that was one of the times where i i finally started playing in paper again was right there at m10 in zendikar when you walked in the door did was the atmosphere such that them being already a decade down the road on magic did it feel like people thought they had it all figured out yeah surprisingly i i would say it was quite the opposite um you know m10 being one example but it felt like r&d was constantly looking for ways to innovate small or large and you know, I was there when the conversation started about, you know, why don't we draft things in the opposite order? You know, it used to be you'd, you'd draft the big set, so you go big, 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 and then you'd introduce a new set and you'd draft big, big, small. But they said, wait, why don't you go the other way and start with the new set, the one everyone's excited to open, and that you can use that to, to shift your draft. And so it went small, big, big, right? And that was, you know, almost irrelevant these days given that every set is a standalone set it seems anymore i don't remember the last time we had a small expansion that built on something and you drafted with it but back then that was a a big shift right and you know putting basic lands in packs putting non-basic lands in the basic land slot you know all these little types of innovation they were constantly looking for ways to do that um they weren't quite as aggressive during the time i joined r&d but it it quickly became obvious they 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 were always looking for these ways and, and always trying out new things right um and and that energy you can see that today now with with some of the ridiculous stuff coming out in terms of you know variants and you know text boxes full of words and various keywords you know the things they're playing around with mechanically the things they're doing with arena all those things it's very clear they're still constantly looking for new ways to innovate and you know right now their focus is on innovating clearly to to find ways to make a more money but uh, it still drives the design pretty strongly here one of the most unique parts of magic design has to be the tension of building a set of cards that are going to be played in a variety of different ways so the mm-hmm existence of a limited format versus a constructed is a big enough schism as it were but we actually have draft and sealed and then six or seven constructed formats and then edh being singleton with a commander right how how does that you know permeate or inform the day-to-day discussions back in the day on the floor like is that are you struggling with that tension on a regular basis, like you find a really great card design, but it works in one of those circumstances, but not the other. Um, so this is definitely an area where you are one vastly overstating the number of unique formats that R and D cares about, or at least cared about back then. 
Um, and I'll go into detail about that in a second. But also just there's tons of tools to help divide those things. So um, at least back when I joined R&D, it really was sealed and standard. Everything else was kind of an afterthought. Okay. Um, you would, they basically assumed that if sealed was a decent format and sealed was a lot easier to set up, that uh, draft would be at least close enough that they could adjust it close to the end in development and get close enough, right? You would still draft it and that would be fun. You, you couldn't get R&D not to draft a set. It was too fun not to draft, right? <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't a primary focus. It was just limited and sealed and draft were just limited and sealed was the most common way to practice it, right? And then constructed, it was standard and, and that was pretty much it. They just assumed everything else would work itself out over time. They paid a little bit of attention to the metagame and, and occasionally tried to plant cards or, you know, would ban a card or whatever, but it wasn't a huge focus. And then of course, between limited and standard, you controlled you made it. You, you you managed to control the difference between those two almost entirely through rarity. You know, commons were almost entirely for for limited. Rares and mythics were designed for constructed, more often than not. And then uncommons were kind of those utility cards in the middle that kind of bridged the gap, right? And and that still continues to this day to some degree. It's not quite as clear that it's it's quite as clear that that's you know their main factor rather than simply what are the coolest cards that we want to sell people on, you know? Sure. EDH was, wasn't even a thing that people designed for at all there. We didn't even have EDH specific sets at the time I joined R&D. That was an innovation that came out, you know, two thirds of the way through my tenure or something yeah, like that. Right. On that topic, do you, do you remember the emergence of the awareness of EDH and the step-by-step -step, to some degree in terms of a light going on over somebody's head where they were like, you know what, this might be the future of the game. You know, honestly, that was still not really a strong focus based on what I could tell even when I left Wizards. Like they certainly acknowledged it and cared about it and were designing sets for it. But even then it was more like, let's design you know, cards that we can put into theme decks and sell theme decks, and that's the product. The product is we're, we're not going to try to design a set around EDH or cards in a set around EDH. We're going to design EDH decks that happen to have new cards in them, right? And, and that worked well for a while. Um, and it wasn't that there wasn't any multiplayer sets released while I was there. There was Battle Bond. No, not Battle Bond. Uh, the other one before that, Conspiracy. Conspiracy, sure. Um, conspiracy, and I think Conspiracy 2 might have happened during that time frame too, but but we hadn't had Commander Masters yet, or Legends. Um, we hadn't had... I can't think of any of the sets that were explicitly focused on EDH, right? Even the Conspiracies of the world were like, this is a free-for-all design set. It's a, it's a magic set designed around multiplayer, but it's not designed for commander per se. A lot of the cards will work in it. And so, you know, it was still designed in that direction, obviously, but they still hadn't quite put two and two together that EDH was going to be the bread and butter. Um, and I don't think that that necessarily even happened until COVID, to be completely honest. I, I, they were moving in that direction constantly, but I think that was the point where they said, wait, people are still playing EDH. People have stopped drafting and standard is tanked, but people are still playing EDH, right? We better we better own that. Yeah, where they realized there was actually a raft under the game. Right. 
because COVID, exactly. the, the month that COVID shutdowns appeared, that was such a scary time for vendors, and I'm sure inside Wizards and every other related business as well. And then the, the, the big crash that was predicted just never happened. In fact, Magic Singles went on a tear alongside all the other collectibles through a yeah. combination of people redirecting their uh, disposable income during COVID from big trips and new cars and into smaller uh, impulse purchases, as well as crypto going on a big run and and driving a bunch of money back into collectibles. Have you noticed, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, especially with Doctor Who, uh, I think is by far the wordiest set I have seen. Like, is, That's saying a lot. And... and I mean, if you can think of a wordier one, I think one of the sagas had six different keywords on it. Um, can you think of, like, there has to be a point at which they can, complexity is too much, right? Because you've got to make cards for, you know, Doctor Who is clearly for the established player. You already know what's going on. You can put uh, a token with vanishing on a saga that also has something with time travel. Um, but, like, is complexity the thing that keeps a designer up at night, I guess is what I'm asking? Or, or to put it another way or to add on to that, when you were on, you know, boots on the ground, was was the thinking that kitchen table magic was the thing? Was was that still the the driving force for sales? Was that well understood? And was that knowledge distributed among the team yeah that was something i i was thinking about as we were talking about eh that i failed to mention was that um during my tenure there was this huge understanding this understanding that there's a huge segment of players that we just couldn't even measure and they were just called the kitchen table players right or you know whatever you want to say kitchen tables um and this was something mark rosewater understood as well as you can understood something that you can't measure and would constantly talk about, you know, like, what is the curb appeal of this card, essentially? What, what's a, you know, a 12-year-old opens this in their only booster pack for the week. Are they going to get excited? Are they going to stick it in their unsleeved 60-card, you know, 15 lands deck that they play against their friends on the kitchen table, right? And I think EDH kind of gave Wizards an excuse to stop thinking about kitchen table play and start, because it's the same thing, it's just more monetizable, Right. EDH is kitchen table play that has a much wider range of income levels it can support, a wider range of, uh, you know, self-bucketing on, on how much money you spend, right? And so uh, I think that kind of let them get away with having more complicated designs, more words. And I think they've, whether they've embraced it on purpose or whether it's just happenstance, I think magic is kind of working its way away from essentially new players, casual players, kitchen table players, whatever you want to call them that might struggle with super complicated cards, might struggle with too many words, and just has said, you know what, we're just going to focus on cards that are cool, that look cool, that fit the IPs, you know, the, the universes beyond. We're going to pull players in with foils, we're going to pull players in with cool, you know, frames, millions of variants and and you know every card says draw a card on it we're going to pull people in with power we're going to pull people in with reprints they've they've kind of got so many ways of making money and pulling people in right now that they don't have to worry about 
too many words. And so I think it's kind of becoming a blind spot for them. They're, they're, they're kind of getting away with something that's going to, you know, cost them in 10 years or five years or something, but, but it's, you know, it's kind of subtle for, for now, right? They haven't needed to go back to the well of, of new players for a while. Yeah. I mean, to expand on that point and tie it back to conversations we've had on here many times, the, you know, one of my core concerns is whether the era, you know, the booster fund era, which most of us in the MTG finance community would equate with targeting the most invested players, the whales, as it were, to get them to go from spending a couple thousand dollars a year on magic to say $5,000 plus. And that that supports the complexity in the way that you just described. These are people that have been playing the game 5, 10, 15 plus years. They have large collections. They play multiple formats. They have their favorites for sure, but they're able to parse a card kind of almost no matter what you put on it. Does that does that seem to you like they are giving up on attracting new players with little to no TCG experience? I think it's them giving up on attracting players who are new to games and card games and things like that. I think, which honestly, the more I think about it, you know, I'm kind of doing this live here, isn't necessarily wrong. Magic has always been a complicated game as a game, right? If you want to get into board gaming, if you want to get into card gaming, you should not start with Magic. Um, that was never correct. Um, and you certainly shouldn't start with Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon either. They're they're complicated. But if you want to, if you're like, I love Pokemon or I love Yu-Gi-Oh! and I want to play the game, you're going to force yourself through it. And so what is the audience for simple magic cards? Who Who is that bringing in that wouldn't come in even if the cards are complicated, right? That's the question that I would be asking myself as a designer. And I'm not sure it's a big enough audience to matter in the grand scheme of things. As much as that sucks, you know, the game design is less elegant, but they're past the phase where they need to court every possible new player, right? You know, Alpha cares about this. I don't think the 30th year of Magic cares about this anymore. Yeah, they've got tools for for bringing in new players. That's what Arena is. And it was always a game that was designed to be taught by somebody who already knew what was going on. Magic's like a god-awful game to acquire from any other method than a really patient computer or a really patient friend. Yep. My concern about Arena as a major onboarding tool is that I wonder, having not seen the actual stats that they may or may not have their their fingers wrapped around already, whether they're actually how strong the pipeline is from Arena to Paper Magic. I have a feeling that uh, there are a lot of people that started Magic on Arena that have not never gone to Paper, that didn't transition to EDH with their friends on a Friday night, and that are kind of stuck inside that business model, which by all accounts is actually inferior for Wizards purposes versus Magic Online in terms of ARPU, in terms of revenue per user. Does that sound right to you? you? You worked on Magic Online as well. Yeah, I mean, Magic Online, I, I don't know the numbers. I don't know the numbers to compare the two, but Magic Online isn't actually that expensive to play if you know what you're doing. And it never has been that expensive to play because you could always cash out a certain percentage of basically any event 
if you had a reasonable win rate. You don't even have to have a 50% win rate. You just have to win often enough that you get some dregs off the prizes, play limited, draft some rares, cash your collection out every once in a while. It's relatively cheap. Um, similar to Paper Magic, you can do the same thing with your draft winnings and you know picking and choosing your battles. Um, Arena doesn't let you do that. Arena is actually much more expensive if you're not really good. Um, I went back to playing Arena and I dropped you know 100 bucks on draft tokens or whatever it was at the time um, for some set. I think it was Neo, and I, I love Neo, but and I was really good at Neo, but there was still I hit a I hit a dry spell and my hundred bucks was gone in like two days. You know, it, it's 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 amazing how easy it is to tilt yourself off and and, and lose your bankroll, right? As it were. So uh, I don't know that Magic Online has a better ARPU. If I'm being completely honest. Interesting. I, I I've heard. Otherwise, and, and if you have data, if you have if you have data that you can, I don't have hard data, so I can't I can't make a definitive claim either. The I mean I can certainly anecdotally relate that in the same way that if you're good enough to train uh, drafts on Magic Online, you can do the same thing on Arena. Like for instance, I've never certainly. put money into Arena, certainly. and I usually end up drafting twenty times per set. Well, and aren't then, you special? Right. And then I hit a roadblock and fail out on decks that you think are decent and and then you 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 basically have to go back to playing constructed to grind out your gold to go back in and get a get a rebuy but the because there's there's no buy-in on events on on arena that requires gems as opposed to the gold you always have the option of just going back to one of the constructed formats and playing for free and then eventually a week or two later you'll have your buy-in for whatever it is you're trying to get back to yeah, and you know the fact that you can grind out back into the game is totally intentional. It keeps people playing until the time when they decide they are willing to spend money or they want to cash out into paper or whatever, right? Whatever. They'd rather you stick around and not make them money than leave and not make them money, right? So I want to go back to like some further exploration on on complexity. The where were they in the process of releasing Planeswalkers when you came on board? That was in Lorwyn. And we're... It was in Lorwyn, so, yep. So did that happen um, just before you got there or just after? So my understanding, and this might be a bit apocryphal, but my understanding is that they were hoping to put a single Planeswalker in Future Sight. And they hadn't settled down the rules well enough to be confident they had the right design. And, and this was they, they sensed that this was important enough to get right that they didn't want to mess it up by rushing it into future sight. And they were right. This was a obviously a critical change to both the rules and the complexity and nature of the game and its IP. So, you know, I respect that they took their time to get it right for Lorwyn. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I started... My, my first set that I was able to even touch was Morning Tide. So when I got there, Lorwyn had Planeswalkers in it already. I don't remember how close they were to the final designs or if the rules were still shifting a little bit here and there, but... Um, I, I arrived kind of right at the tail end of them figuring out Planeswalkers and putting them into magic, at least initially, the initial five, right? Back when they were still rare, we didn't even have Mythics yet. Um, do, do you do you have a sense of how you, what your reaction was like to that, to the design of the mechanics of Planeswalkers? I legitimately don't remember, um, if I'm being completely honest. I'm, I'm sure I found it fascinating, but... You know, your first few weeks in R&D is just there's so much stuff to absorb <laughs> that it's hard to say any one thing shocks you because it's just all it's like, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just can't <laughs> get enough. Um, 
that's not even a joke. Like it is, it is almost like entering a piece of heaven for a month or two while you get your bearings and it's just overwhelmingly amazing in every possible way. And then, and then you come to your senses and realize that it's a real job and, and you know, they work you to death, but you know, first couple <laughs> months are pretty amazing. Sure. So, I mean, the, the conversation around planeswalkers and their, their origin and the thinking uh, within the team at that time is of a special interest now because through lore and mechanics, over the last year or so, they've very much represented that they're backing off them entirely. In the story right. for Aftermath, they de-sparked 90% of the Planeswalkers, so there's going to there's gonna be way less of them in the lore mm-hmm. and in the game. They're only going to committing to having, I think, one Planeswalker per standard set at this point. And it very much seems like that is a reaction to their relatively low play rates in Commander because it's so easy for them to get attacked down and it feels like the replacement for that is sagas um, as enchantments that have multi-stage triggers that, you know, as opposed to loyalty that can be attacked out of existence. You just have this, you know, either you can destroy the or exile the enchantment or it's just going to continue to do its thing. Does, right. does that just grok for you as a completely sensible transition from as a reaction to how people are playing the game? You know, it's... It's not something I thought about uh, Planeswalkers leaving as being related to EDH, but that makes total sense now that you say it. I, I did, I have noticed, I mean, who hasn't noticed that magic cards have gotten wordier over time and they've they've tried to do a lot of things to try and uh, essentially chunk the words. Uh, and sagas are one of those examples that I think have been very successful. Um, it's a lot easier to read bullet points one, two, and three in order and understand how the card works than it is to read exactly those same number of words, but it's on a, you know, enters the battlefield trigger as a modal list of options that you can choose every turn or whatever, right? Somehow. It's hard to explain exactly why that's true, but it's true. Um, And so they're, I I love sagas. I think it's it's great. Uh, I love that they're exploring different ways to make these more complicated, more wordy cards still be you know, grokkable as a as a chunk um, between their their DFCs and their adventures and their sagas. I, I really like a lot of those things they're doing. So the big one we got, of course, after many years, um, for the first time in quite a long time, was the battlefields uh, l- yeah. last year. W- was that a concept that had already been discussed years prior, like while you were around, or was that completely new? Oh, to definitely. You? Those those have been. Not necessarily the exact design that they landed on for battles, but things that you can attack that aren't planeswalkers, things that you have to defend that aren't planeswalkers, um, those have been in and out of sets uh, probably since before planeswalkers, but I wasn't there for that. But definitely it, it was an obvious design space that was being explored regularly and it was just one of those things where you know it's coming at some point. They just hadn't found the right design until they got to battles or hadn't found the right moment combined with the right design until they got to battles. Um, so that wasn't a surprise at all. And as soon as I saw that those were coming, I had a pretty good idea of exactly what they were going to do and how they were going to work. And the, uh, the the only thing that changed was that they, they let you pick who defends them rather than sure. uh, being just you, which was kind of, I think, the big thing that probably they figured out let them let them get them going right is that you attack your own battles right that's very different it's very proactive they figured out how to make them proactive well again as a nod to edh where you can 
politicize who who's defending yeah. the battle. <laughs> but that was always the that was always the big design constraint, right? Like the obvious thing is that you play it like a planeswalker and you defend it, and as long as you can defend it, you get bonuses. But they they figured out how to flip it on its head and make it proactive, where you play it and you attack your own battle. I think that was actually a, a pretty strong work of genius there, even if it's you know a little bit weird. Are there other concepts like that still floating in the ether years later that you're like why haven't like i thought we were going to get around to this but you still haven't seen it are you allowed to talk about it i mean at this point i can't imagine anything i could say would still fall under nda um at least it's it's speculative at best right um you know the only thing that comes to mind right now i haven't spent a lot of time thinking about things that they're not doing um but i really love i really love what they've been doing with tokens i love uh that they're exploring tokens as game pieces that can have their own rules text built into them more consistently you know they started with just clues and treasures and stuff and those were great and moved on to food and then they went to like roll tokens and you know uh, blood tokens dungeons maps blood tokens maps yeah and i love most of those i feel are great you know maybe they're not hits mechanically but just the idea that they're exploring those really makes me happy because it's it's almost free design space it's new stuff that plays differently in lots of interesting ways and gets you some extra text onto cards because you can write the text on the token um and it surprised me that it took so long to get there the thing that surprises me they haven't done is land tokens and it's something that I was fighting for before I even left Wizards. I was like, why isn't... You guys hate shuffle effects. You hate evolving wilds and rampant growth because they shuffle and they take time. <clears throat> Which, you know, now I'm starting to figure out why they haven't done it because Arena is how everyone plays, so who cares about shuffling anymore? But right. um, EDH might change that, make eventually... The problem with EDH is no one wants basic lands. Um, so that was always my one thing, was like, why don't we make a set where we can have lots of land you know, effects, you know, changing lands, searching for lands, whatever, but like you could just make land tokens, you know, evolving wilds that gets you a basic land token of your choice. Why don't we do that? And at the time, the excuse was, well, we don't want to, you know, create a bunch of tokens like that. And that's not an excuse anymore to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not, not now that you've experienced the state of our pro trader EDH pod board states. Yeah. But I, I suspect at some point, you will see basic land tokens. It'll probably be in some sort of set that cares about some combination of, you know, landfall, having a million mana, you know, some Rise of Eldrazi type machine set where, like, they want to make sure you can get access to lots of different colors, lots of mana, but they don't want you to have to stuff your deck full of basics to do it and shuffle 10 times a game, right? Yeah, like the, pow- um, like the so- Power Stones and Brothers War. Right, right, yeah. So... Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind there. Uh, they've, they've done a lot of stuff, um, that I kind of expected a lot of stuff while I was there that I kind of expected. Um, I have kind of a history of suggesting they do something and then they do it five years later, even though they didn't want me to do it. So, uh, (laughs) that's mostly over with at this point, obviously having not been there very long Gotcha. for a long time. So from your perspective, you know, up on the hillside, far removed from, from the trenches now, looking over what they've done in your absence do you have a would you say you have a generally a positive negative ambivalent feeling as to the direction of the game you know there's things i really love and it's it's very clear that r&d still has 
uh, the touch when they when they have the time to use it or when they get a little bit lucky, right? Like they they're making sets still that I that I either enjoy playing or that I look at and go, I would probably enjoy playing that if I had time to play it. Um, I, I haven't played limited since uh, Neo, but I loved Neo, and that's relatively modern, all, all, all in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, that set was brilliant from a limited perspective, as far as I'm concerned. It had tons of layers, and it was beautiful. And the the, the problems I see, the things that scare me, are that it feels essentially like they're kind of methodically burning all their safety nets, right? Um, they they have a ton of momentum. They're they're finding lots of untapped uh, whale space, for lack of a better term, yep. with you know various IPs, various ways of juicing the boosters, various ways of getting people to chase boosters, right? But in the process of doing that, they're they're kind of ignoring a lot of other things, and they're burning all their safety nets for when that stops working. They're burning their LGS network. They're burning some number of whales who are getting fatigue or getting frustrated at the reprint cycles or, you know, you know, M30 or whatever it is that pisses them off. Uh, they're, you know, talking about draft being on the chopping block. It's not actually, obviously, they, they're doing play boosters, but the fact that that was even a conversation makes it very obvious that the highest up people don't care about draft existing. And if they could cut it and save enough money to make it worth it, they would. If they could focus everybody on just pumping out more things that people open for shiny golden tickets, they would. And it's almost as if draft exists because R&D wills it still into existence, right? Um, and then constructed, obviously, you know, is a joke in a lot of different ways at various times in various formats as well, right? So they're, they're going to find themselves at some point you know, I don't know if it's going to be in a year, five years, 10 years or whatever, they're going to start. This is a prediction, you know, I obviously have no insight into this actually happening, but I feel like what's going to happen in somewhere to five to 10 years is they're going to start seeing a downward trend. They're going to have mined all the stuff. They're going to, people are going to hit product fatigue. They're going to run out of UBs to hit. They're going to, whatever it is, the number is going to start going down. They're going to start getting desperate and they're going to start scrambling and they're not going to be able to ever make the line go back up again until it hits some new local minimum. And they're not going to have all those safety nets that they've burned to help them bounce back up. They're not going to have a strong LGS network full of judges that are happy to support the game because everybody likes to get together in their community and draft magic and then play EDH and then go home. Um, they focus too much on the other stuff. And that's that's what I see happening. And I don't know where that's going to land them. I don't know how bad of a crash it's going to be. It might be just a blip. It might be huge. But that's kind of where I see things going right now. It's interesting because I suspect one of the things they're looking at is that Pokemon, which is both the mm -hmm. biggest TCG, the biggest winner during COVID, and also just the biggest entertainment brand anywhere on the planet, which is not something I think people outside of Pokemon and TCG gaming even realize is that it's not Marvel. It's not it's not Disney, Star Wars, uh, or any of these other huge things that people might assume are the biggest entertainment brands on the planet. It's not Major League Sports. It's not even soccer. It's Pokemon. Like I think probably the, so, the total revenue across soccer around the world not owned by one entity is probably the biggest overall. But in terms of a singular entity owned by a corporation, it's definitely Pokemon. And So you're... You believe that Pokemon 
is bigger as a property than all of Disney, including Disney's parks and, and it's, merchandising it, and everything. Pokemon is bigger than any one of the arms of Disney. So bigger than okay. Pixar, I'll big, that, bigger yeah. than Star Wars, bigger than... Uh, yeah. what, which one am I missing? Marvel. So that makes sense. The, yeah. In terms of entertainment brands, it's number one and has been for some years. And I, the thing about Pokemon, the TCG, is that those products are very much designed to not be played. Like yep. most Pokemon collector, most Pokemon purchasers are not buying to play in any kind of constructed format at their local LGS. They might play at the kitchen table. Probably the people doing that the most are the ones teaching their kids how to play and playing with their kids till their kids grow out of it. But most of the higher end product that they're selling into that space is being bought by on a nostalgia basis. It's guys like my brother who are, you know, he's. Uh, almost 15 years back down the road behind me, didn't really grow up playing Magic, but did play a lot of Pokemon on his video gaming systems more than he ever played it, you know, as a card game. He had the cards because he was playing the video game, not the other way around. And then when he, you know, came into his earning years and before he had kids, he was going around trying to get, swallow up all this Pokemon nostalgia stuff. And I think that they look at that and they think, well, if they can do it, we can too. But I have a lot of the same concerns that you do, that not only can the whales be overmined, I think that the commitment, I think the connection that might be missing for some executives is that the commitment of those whales, their willingness to to spend two to five times more on the game per year than they were prior, hinges on the availability of options for play. That, that they... There has never been very much of a, there is, but it's not very large percentage of our community, even among the whales, of people that are collecting on a, are purchasing on a pure collectibles basis. I would say that somebody like my father is probably the closest in terms of an archetype of that, where he's a doctor, he works 60 hours a week, he doesn't really have time to show up at the LGS and play because he's still in his office when that's going off. And so he has never other than at major events, like he'll fly to Vegas once a year to go draft for the whole weekend. But for the rest of the year, he's on a, he was on Magic Online and now Arena. And so he buys all the product that comes out, but very little of it ever gets cracked. It just goes on the shelf. I think that's very, very rare in Magic. And I think that you're right to, to worry um, or surmise that there is some limit to that if you cut out access to play. If, if there isn't some yep. strong circuit between your local gaming store, the online offering, and your collection that motivates you to be churning through those interactions, there's got to, there, there does have to be some wall that gets hit down the road. I mean, Absolutely. do we and, think that uh, paper magic has to exist? Like, could they have Arena as its own product eventually? Like, if paper were to just magically vanish... I I was curious as to whether there was a top-level executive th- thought line at one point when they were launching Arena that paper gaming was going away, period. That like we were headed to virtual reality and that the, the game plan for the brand 20 years out needed to be, you know, what's the latest VR module for Magic? What, was, was any of that ever discussed internally as to like what the longevity of Magic as a paper game might be like? You know, I don't remember specifically that being a concern. It's possible it was a side concern. I do remember that Arena was very much, you know, 
essentially Hearthstone exists. Why are we not making the money Hearthstone <laughs> right. is making? Right. right. That's the that's the ten second version of it, right? And you can see how that is kind of just a different way to say the same thing you're saying, if that makes sense, right? If you, you know, if paper games go away essentially and all gaming goes online, if you're the the top digital card game at the point where that happens, you're set up to succeed, right? If 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 somebody you know, cast a magic spell tomorrow and all paper games disappear and don't exist anymore. Hearthstone's in a much better place than magic, but magic's in a pretty decent space now. So they've set themselves up with that, with that fail case, right? That, that safety net, which is great. Um, but I don't know that anyone was specifically thinking paper magic is going anywhere. I do specifically remember, you know, hey, paper magic, you know, it's going to be around for who knows how much longer, 10 years, 15, 20 at the time. So we did have that conversation, but nobody seemed to be on the page that it was going away anytime soon, right? right? And so like one of the things I see all the time in social media is people trying to extrapolate out and saying that they're burning this wick so fast because they're planning on going all digital. And the part that I think they miss completely there is that even if Arena let you play everything, the ARPU on Arena could never in a million years even remotely approximate the revenue generated by whales that buy some of everything. Because yeah, it's not even possible. When you're inside I, like, when you're inside Pro Trader surveying our four digit membership and how they spend their money, how many trips they go on to play magic, how many decks they buy, how many singles they purchase, buy buy and sell. And these are of course the minority. You know, this is on on the the scale, the the graph of of players, the kitchen table play, people spending less than two hundred and fifty a year are the bulk of the people. But one whale could equal 10 to 50 of those people. Yeah. And and so the idea that you could take a corporation or a brand, which is now like a billion dollars a year or whatever, where four-fifths of that are coming from paper and that they would ever give that up without the market leading them there is just crazy to me. It's basic, functionally impossible and just never going to happen. The only way it happens is as is the the you the scenario you just described, which is that the market moves away from paper completely. People just stop playing paper games. They don't play board games. They're not buying anything in paper, and everybody's doing digital slash VR or whatever because it's so much better and so ubiquitous. And there's a VR studio in everyone's living room, and as a yep. result, we all switch. Yeah, there's no with the technology available today and the culture we have today, there's no way you could come anywhere close to pulling off what they did with the one of one ring in digital. It just never would happen. Right. There's just no way. And for for them to ever be as successful in digital as they are in paper, that would have to that, that you'd have to flip that script. You'd have to be living in a world where digital scarcity was seen as a a positive normal thing to, you know, build your your social culture around right um and and that's just not true right now that's just i mean you saw how nfts went right yeah that, <laughs> that didn't work out yeah, didn't work out crypt, the metaverse crypt, you saw yeah, the metaverse went yeah that didn't work out crypto gaming hasn't come together <laughs> yet if it ever will and and it was and it's not just arena where i don't spend money like most of the games i play on platform i don't spend money or i spend very little like i bought Baldur's gate 
but that was whatever it was, 60 or $80. And I spent hundreds of hours on it, but I'm never going to give them another dime because they've said they're never going to put out another module. And then on Apex Legends, the main first person shooter that I play that I've got oh, at least two or 3,000 hours into since it came out, I've never given them a single cent because you don't have to, to play. And so the only people that are doing that are the ones that are addicted to purchasing cosmetics. Like that's like, you know, you're in mobile gaming, you know, the, the dirty secret of the industry is that like a small percentage of the players pay for everybody else to play for free. Yeah. And that's totally true. And that's something that we're trying to cope with because we want to build ethical games ourselves, right? We don't want to feel like we're, we don't want people to ever walk away feeling like they didn't get their money's worth or that we tricked them into spending money or that they had to pay to play to pay to win rather than pay to, you know, play faster or play to play more often or whatever. Right. Um, and that's hard. It's hard to do that and still make money ethically. Right. Um, in the mobile industry. And that's, that's something we're struggling with planning out. We haven't got to the point where we know whether we're going to succeed or not. Um, but it's hard. It's very hard. And and I can't imagine Magic is coming anywhere close to that with their digital properties compared to their physical. I agree. So net-net, back to my original question, do you feel generally negative, positive, ambivalent on the direction of design? I, I feel neutral to positive on the direction of the game itself and its design in terms of what they're doing with the space they have left and the constraints they're put under you know, the number of sets they have to produce yearly, the hours they have to do it, um, and what matters to them right now, right? I feel pretty good about the game design, all things told, um, but I have definitely a net negative feeling about essentially the metagame, which is not the same thing most people think of when they hear metagame and magic. The metagame is just everything outside of the game, all of the, the, the LGS and judges and whales and drafting and formats and all that stuff I was talking about, right? And you know, you talk about the whales, you know, slowly leaving and whatever. And, and I think we're, we're essentially in a period of, of what is commonly referred to when you're talking about digital services, commonly referred to as an inshittification, right? <laughs> Where uh, it's a real term, look it up, inshittification. It is essentially the, the, the situation where a company, let's just say Netflix as a, as a relevant example, a company constantly makes their offering just slightly worse and slightly worse in an attempt to get slightly more money out of every customer or slightly more customers. And they just keep doing that over and over and over. And the loyal customers put up with it for some time. And eventually they start leaving and the company goes, oh, wait, 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 let's just undo that last thing we did. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it was the the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, and the camel's back is still broken, right? You don't get your trust back. And that's not the perfect parable here because this isn't just a trust issue. It's also just a general safety nets issue. But, but that's what I see going on here is they're slowly finding ways to cut as many corners as possible, corners that they don't believe are making them money or at least aren't making them money in the short term, and, and the, the piper is going to come, come calling, right? Um, how it's going to manifest itself, when it's going to happen, I don't know, but but it's going to come somehow. It's gonna, it just has to. They're they're throwing too many things out the window. So just to wrap up, then, let's say that you know you're sitting on high, looking down upon this situation, and the the crown is on your forehead, and you can make any and all decisions. <laughs> and obviously, this is a very complex topic, and it is. It you is. Know, you have you have nowhere near enough time to to plan it out. But what are some like just 
gut check things where you're like, I would probably at least look at trying this instead of this. I mean, you know, there's a huge caveat there that if you assume that I have the power to do whatever I want, right? I'm not beholden to a board of directors who are just going to say, don't do that. It doesn't make us money in in three months, right? Assuming that I can do what I think makes sense for the long-term health of the game. uh, Honestly, I would be going back and, and looking for ways to re-energize that network, that that ground network of of LGSs, of judges, of players, you know, whether that's, you know, cheaper product to some degree, whether that's exclusives. And I know they're playing with these things to some degree, but like give LGSs a way to actually profit from magic rather than just scrape by and carry it because they feel obligated to, right? Give LGSs the support to actually run events now that COVID is quote over unquote and people are actually going back to events. Um, and I don't know how to do that. This is just not my specialty. Oh, I don't, James will tell I'm, you. Don't I'm worry. Not a, yeah, I'm not a marketer. I'm not a PR person. I don't know how to do any of this stuff, but that would be, I would be hiring experts on how to rebuild that social network that exists to support the game when it's struggling and when people care about the love of the game rather than spending money, essentially, right? We need to support. It's similar to Arena, where if you want to play for free, you can, and you're there to support the whales. They need to take that same attitude and apply it to the paper game. They need to understand that that mass of players who don't give them very much money are just as important to the overall health of the game long term as the the whales, right? And they're I think they're kind of they're kind of scraping scraping by ignoring them for now but eventually that's going to come to roost all right alexis it's been fantastic (laughs) to talk to you this is a fascinating subject and i'm sure we could all go on forever but cliff does eventually need to get to sleep at some point (laughs) yeah blame me that's cool yeah i'm Uh I'm the Uh one on pacific time here well you both are yep i'm the one who came in for a 20 minute segment and we've talked for an hour now so you know Alrighty. Welcome well, thank to my you. world. Thank you so much for yep. being here with us and sharing Absolutely. Uh, your knowledge and experience. Uh, thanks to Cliff and thanks to all the listeners. Cliff, where, where can folks find you online, my friend? You can find me online on Twitter at Word of Commander or my articles every Friday on mtgprice.com. You folks can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. You can also find me haunting the Pro Trader Discord also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com pro trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Please use the promo code FINANCE5, that's finance with the number 5, during checkout at Cool Stuff Inc. to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Alexis. And we will see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.